I like that, a snack about God. We might have to change the bulletin. Okay, Mark's alluded to it. Let's just get right down to business. If there's any Panther fans, you're allowed to leave right now. We'll have a, we'll have a time of consolation tomorrow morning. <laughs> Didn't laugh at that one. Not big Bronco fans, are you? <laughs> yes, somebody said. All right, a couple of things I want to bring to your attention on the back of the bulletin. One of them is a typo, but it's a very important announcement. This Wednesday, we start Ash Wednesday, so we're on the journey to Easter. Lent begins this coming Wednesday. And we're having an Ash Wednesday service here at the church at 6, not 6.30. Did you see that? 6, not 6.30. We're going to have a 30-minute Ash Wednesday service, and I'd like to invite you all to come. It's a very simple but a very meaningful service for 30 minutes, from 6 to 6.30. Then right below that are Christian education classes. We have two that just started, and one of them is Wednesday night at 6.30. So if you come at 6.30 for Ash Wednesday, you might as well just come into my class, okay? So we're going to come here for 30 minutes, celebrate Ash Wednesday, and then we'll go across for those of you that want to. We're discussing finding Christ in the Old Testament. You can still come. We just started last week. And um, we're looking through the Old Testament, putting the books in the order that they're written, as best we could tell, and seeing what they tell us about Christ and God's plan as revealed in the Messiah. And on Thursday night, Judy Deal is teaching a class on exploring the fourth gospel. Again, the same time, 6.30 to 8 on Thursday night. In um, March, uh, Lisa Bess will be starting a series on the Trinity. So we have several new education, Christian education classes that have just started or about to start. You'll notice uh, way out Wednesdays, the ladies and the men both have skiing on Wednesday morning. Just bringing that to your attention. If you like to ski, join us. It's a lot of fun. Wednesday morning, we go for two or three hours and then have coffee afterwards and just talk. Down below, we have a whole series of things coming up if you want to have your child dedicated. Next Sunday, February 14th, we're going to do that. March 6th, we have an inquirer's class. That's just your chance to learn about our church. Why do we do the things we do? What do we believe? What are we about? And then Sunday, March 13th, we have a baptism service. So uh, contact Mark or me if you're interested in any of those things, and we'd be glad to, to help you get that accomplished. All right, I'd like to take a few moments and just pray for some of the families in our church that uh, continue to struggle. So let's just pray. Father, I'd like to lift up Pete Ward. Thank you, God, that uh, his surgery was successful. I um, haven't talked to him, but I'm sure he's in pain right now going through rehab. And I pray that you would be close to he and Gail during this time and help him to heal. I continue to pray for Phyllis Labar, Lord. And, um healing from her surgery and the rehab there, help her to strengthen. Lord, I pray for the families. We have several families in our church that have said goodbye to loved ones. I'm thinking of the Cummings and the Fishers and the Nelsons and the Bolenders. And and Lord, there's others. Uh, Just, Lord, as as they learn what the new normal looks like without a loved one that they want to be around and miss, Pray that you would continue to show them grace in their grieving process. Father, I pray for the Herring family. Thank you for the, the good results from the chemo and radiation. Pray that you would continue to bless them and, and um, continue to teach them about yourself, Lori and Nancy, as they go through this process. Thank you for that. Lord, we are grateful to you. And Father, we lift up our president and government in the upcoming elections. We just ask that you would uh, do your thing. You would do what's best for our country. We trust you. 
And we're grateful, Lord, that you are a God who is in control of all of the universe so you know what's happening. Thanks, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, as Mark said, this is the uh, last Sunday in our festival series. I've been looking at the Jewish festivals. We looked at six of them. And we've been journeying through these festivals and asking the question, how does Jesus fulfill each of these festivals? But, But just as important as that, not only does he fulfill them, but he redefines them within our context today. So, for example, we looked at very first at Hanukkah. Uh, all of these are mentioned in the Bible, by the way. We looked at Hanukkah. Hanukkah celebrates the, re- the capturing of the temple in 164, 163 B.C. And the, um, after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated it and they reestablished it and, and clean, cleaned it and purified it. And they celebrate that every, every year. We looked at how Jesus becomes our temple. He fulfills that as the new temple and then turns right around and creates a spiritual temple. That's us. Went from there to Passover and talked about our exodus from sin and oppression. Both are important. You know, the exodus reveals something about the character of God that is very significant. He hates exploitation. He hates, he hates it when we oppress one another. All the way throughout every book of the Old Testament, there's language about caring for the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, the slaves, the foreigners, on and on and on. That is part of God's very character, has been and always will be. He hates it. We should be a church that celebrates the equality Christ has brought, and we should welcome people that are in less fortunate circumstances than we are and bless them. God didn't bless you for your own personal comfort and benefit. He blesses you to bless the people around you. We move from there to atonement. talked about forgiveness of sins. And as part of the atonement, uh, the celebration of the priesthood, Christ becomes our high priest, and then he turns right around and commissions us as priests. We are believer priests, Peter said. Who we preach on behalf of? The rest of the world. All of our friends and neighbors right here that don't know Christ. We move from there to the Festival of Tabernacles or Booths. Talked about celebration, how they, for one whole week, they danced and they partied and they, they sang the Psalms, the Halal Psalms, praising God and danced around the candles and how that, that was to remember the God's provision in the desert with the water. Remember, he provided water for 40 years. And then the pillar of light, he provided guidance and leadership. And so, so tabernacle of booths or um, uh, booths or uh, that festival is to help us celebrate, learn to dance and to remember that God cares for us and provides for us. Last week, we looked at Pentecost, the giving of life. That's what Pentecost is all about. It's part of the agricultural festival as Pentecost is Acts 2 when the giving of the Spirit occurred. And Pentecost is all about the giving of life and the new covenant that comes with it. We should be a congregation that displays new life to the people around us. Well, today we're going to look at Sabbath. We're going to look at Sabbath. It's not actually a festival from the standpoint of you celebrate it once a year. It's a holy day commanded under the Torah, the law of Moses, to be celebrated weekly. So it occurs in almost every festival. In the New, whenever you turn to a festival in the New Testament with Jesus, there's always a Sabbath in the middle of it. It makes sense because it's celebrated weekly. The beginning point for the um, uh, Sabbath, understanding it, is found in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Now, let me remind you where we are in Exodus 20. They're at the beginning of the third month out of Egypt. So they've, they've just made it through the scare of the Egyptian army. 
they went through the Red Sea. God parted it. God destroyed the Egyptian army. And uh, he's taking care of them. And he started to feed them now. Watch out for them. Now they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law. First thing God gives him is the Ten Commandments. Very first thing. One of these commandments relates to the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's, that's the command. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So why don't we do that today? That's a big question in the church. We'll come back to that, actually. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Hear that? It's a Sabbath not to you. It's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. All of a sudden we have a little bit of clue here. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So on the Sabbath you're not to do any work. It's interesting that the Old Testament doesn't explain what that means. Very little information is given on what does it mean not to work. A couple little pieces. We'll see one in the life of Jesus, actually, in just a moment. But it doesn't really answer the question. In the creation story, you may remember Genesis 1. Six days God created. He's going through and making everything. It says in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Well, in the creation story, day seven is mystifying. We understand what it means to work. We do. We're made for work. What do you say in Genesis 1.26? Let us make humans in our image so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, on and on and on. We're created to work. We're created to accomplish things. What we're not created for is to work under the effects of the curse. That's what we're not created for. But every one of you likes to accomplish things and get things done. So we understand that. So day seven is mystifying. Why would God rest? Why would he rest? Is it just a model to give us an example of what it looks like to rest, or is there something deeper? Um, obviously, you know where I'm going to go. There's some deeper theological nuance which gets fleshed out as the Bible unfolds what God really has in mind. You see, when we think about rest, what do we think of? We think of disengagement from the cares and the worries and the tasks of life, perhaps sleeping in, taking a nap, right? Afternoon nap. That's what we think of. Ah, finally. I get to do this. But in the ancient Near East, it had a very different meaning. It didn't mean that at all. You see, God never stopped working. Can you imagine one day in the universe with God not working? Rest is what results when crisis has been resolved, when, when a project has been completed, when stability has been achieved. In other words, when things have settled down. We actually, I was reading this week, and uh, one of the guys I read had a really good example. That's what happens with our U.S. presidency. The president, uh, along with many others, go through two years of a lot of tension, debates, turmoil, campaigning, traveling, exhaustion. Uh, have you ever noticed how quickly our presidents gray when they're in office? That is amazing to me. They go through two years of this intense, maybe longer work, and then they finally win the election, move into the White House, now they lay, sit down, prop their feet up, and they're done. Is that what happens? No. They begin the process of running the country. 
because they've completed that part of the process. That's what the ancients understood resting to be about. They completed something which allowed them to begin the next journey. It means that once a crisis has been resolved, normal routines can be reestablished and enjoyed. That's what it means. It has more to do with the idea of engagement without obstacles rather than engagement without responsibility. Understand the difference? It's related more to engagement without obstacles rather than engagement without responsibilities. Responsibilities never go away. On the Sabbath, your children still want to eat. You still have diapers to change, right? If you own animals, they still got to be taken care of. The root behind Sabbath is the Hebrew word Shabbat, and it means the idea of ceasing. It refers to the completion of an activity with which one has been occupied. So we're busy on a challenge. We're working on something. And when we're done, then we experience rest. It involves, once it's completed, entering into a position of safety, security, stability, if you will. The noun, the noun, which we see in the language of resting place, enters into his rest, into his resting place. That's the place where that security is found. I'm going to give you one example in Psalm 132. This is actually dealing with the Lord. Psalm 132. This is the psalmist talking. Verse 8. Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. So right off the bat, we have the idea that when God enters rest, it involves joy. Our joy. We'll come back to that. Then in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, now this is the Lord speaking, Now think about the idea that God has finished his work and now he's entered his resting place, which is a place of stability so he can run the universe. So think about this. This is the Lord. This is my resting place forever and ever, Zion. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. I think I'll prop my feet up and do nothing. No, no, no. Listen to what he does. I will bless with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. In these passages, God is shown to be coming home to Zion, a secure place, his temple, if you will. This means that God is coming to his temple, because that's where Zion was, to rest. Or a place to oversee and run creation. You see, this is what happened in creation. God built creation, built everything that we see. Then on the seventh day, he rested. He entered into a safe place, which is his room, his home, and began to run the universe. That's what he didn't stop working. Even the Jews believed that. The evidence that God never stopped working was that babies are born and people die on the Sabbath. And if God is sovereign, he's responsible for both. No one ever thought that God stopped working. In fact, Jesus goes on later on to say, my father has been working until now, and I am working as well. Never stopped working. Many of his, many of his healings and miracles took place on the Sabbath to illustrate that he's not working. 
So God began to operate this new creation from his resting place. That's what Sabbath means, Shabbat, in the Old Testament. He took up his rest, and now he begins to rule. Now, security and stability might allow one to relax. That may be part of it, but that's not the core. That's not the key meaning. More importantly, it allows life to continue as it was intended. That's what it means. So to practice Sabbath is you finish something and now you get back to the normal responsibilities of life the way God intended it. You ever wonder what happened on the eighth day? What happened on the eighth day and from then on? Don't we praise God that he's running the universe? He never stops, does he? That would not be good. He has assumed his rightful place as the king and is ruling from his residence. This is the background to the, the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now listen to Exodus 20 again. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. And then... In verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In this passage, Sabbath is grounded in creation and God's resting. Now we're going to turn over to Deuteronomy. We're at the end of the 40-year wandering, Deuteronomy 5. We're going to hear the Ten Commandments repeated again, but Moses adds a new dimension to it at this point. So we're at the end of the wanderings. They're on the banks of the river, about to cross over into the promised land. The generation has all died. The only one left to die now is Moses. Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. He's one of the, one of the group that rebelled against God. He blasphemed God by uh, striking the rock instead of speaking to it. His life's almost over. So he's reminding them. And he gives them the Ten Commandments again. So listen to what's been added here. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. There's that language again. To the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor your male or female servant nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Now here's what he adds. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So in Exodus, Sabbath was grounded in creation and God's resting. In Deuteronomy, we add something to it. Sabbath is now grounded in God's redemption, his rescue from slavery. And it includes everyone, everyone. No one is to be exploited. No one. Not even an animal. Not one of your animals is to work, it says. It tells us. It's beginning to tell us something about what we're created for. Okay? Put in the context of slavery. We're not designed to be slaves. So God rescued us. And we're to honor that. Both passages tell us that the Sabbath is for the Lord. It is a day of rest and worship. It's a holy day set apart to the Lord that is filled with joy. That's what it was designed to do. 
Then comes Jesus. Turn to Mark 2. We're going to take a look at one of the incidents in Mark's life. You, heard, you read part of it this morning. Mark 2, Jesus upsets the Sabbath apple cart, if you will. He's going to turn on the, their head, the leadership, and what they had done with the Sabbath, and he's going to begin to layer on a whole new level of what Sabbath is talking about. All right, this is Mark 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. That was one of the very few things that was expressly forbidden in the law. Can't go out to the fields and pick grain. So what are they doing? Picking grain. I love it. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. Wow. And he clarifies, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. So David went and broke the law. And Jesus holds this up as a standard. Have you ever read what David did? He did the same thing. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for us. We were made, I mean, the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. That's what we read this morning. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His response gives us insight into the role of Sabbath. We learn some new things. Number one, the Sabbath was not to keep people hungry. People still need to eat. That involves work, doesn't it? You see, in the absence of all the instructions in the Old Testament of what it means not to work, the leadership over time had created a pretty good encyclopedia of what it means to work and not work. You could look it up how many feet you could travel, how much pounds you could carry, what you could do, what you couldn't do. I mean, they had to figure all that out. So they wrote their own encyclopedia on what it means to not work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is beginning to correct this. The Sabbath was not made to keep people hungry. Um, rather, it's to keep them from working incessantly. There's a difference. The second thing we learn is that Sabbath was instituted for the sake of humanity, not the reverse. It is God's blessing to us. Every other God said, work hard. Work harder. Work harder. Seven days a week, work harder. And our God says, you work hard enough. Take a break. Um, it was instituted for us. It is God's blessing to create space in our lives. To create space. Space for what? Yes, worship and relaxation, but there's more to it than that. More to it than that. It's this blessing from God. We're the only, we, have, we serve the only God who says, take some time off. And by the way, think about the financial ramifications. Every nation around you is working seven days a week. You only work six days a week. There's a financial ramification. You're earning less profit. Yeah, something to think about. Third thing we learn is that as Son of Man, Jesus is claiming authority to interpret the law I would argue to interpret the law the way God originally intended it, not the way it developed in Jewish history. So he is actually beginning to the process of redefining and reinterpreting it here. So Jesus himself did works on the Sabbath. This created tension with the leadership. Jesus wasn't afraid to work. In fact, the very next passage, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and the man with the shriveled hand was there. 
Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. That's kind of interesting because you get the motivation right up front. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them, heal this man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So he did. So Jesus asked them, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill it? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored and everybody started praising God. Wrong. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. He's working on the Sabbath. It gives us a new model of what Sabbath is all about. Sabbath is not the avoidance of work. Remember the model. God finished his task and began the process of living the life the way life was intended. And we learn right away, we should always do good to people. There is never an excuse not to do that. It's not the avoidance of work that's in view. That's not it at all. So what is it? Okay, now we have to get a little bit more complicated here. We're going to move to Hebrews. You see, Hebrews uh, offers us, Hebrews chapter 3, a whole chapter and a half discussion on Sabbath. I'm not going to read it to you. It, goes, it gets kind of complicated, but I am going to pull out a couple of things. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are His house. We, the church. We've talked about that, haven't we? We're the spiritual temple, aren't we? We're God's dwelling place. We are His house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Let me say it another way. If we hold firmly to our confidence, we prove that we are His house. If we hold firmly and to our confidence and live out our faith and don't give up, we are proof that we trust the Lord. Then he goes through this whole long chapter and a half discussion about the people in the wanderings. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where our ancestors tested and tried me. His conclusion, I declared on oath in my anger, verse 11, they shall never enter my rest. And so the author of Hebrews goes through, he talks about how the people in the wanderings didn't enter the rest. Then, in fact, a little bit later on, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, I'm sorry, I read verse 6. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So even the people after they entered the land, the conquest, still didn't enter the rest. They still lived in a rebellion. And then he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So those are people later on in Israel's history, David's time. So what he's highlighting is that the people throughout this history never entered God's rest. They never got there because of their rebellion. Now, right smack in the middle of this, you have these very severe warning passages. Verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving... Listen to that word. That's called sinful. Unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, and that is a very strong word. Provoke one another. 
Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Let me say it a different way. If we hold our conviction to the end, if we endure, then we have proof that we share in the blessings of Christ. Okay? So he give us all of this stuff. And then he concludes in verse 9 of chapter 4. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's still available. You can enter the promised land. You know what the promised land stood for? It's cryptic. It stood for the good life. God desires to bless. That's what the promised land was all about. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's abundant. It's abundant. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. But remember, he didn't stop working. He entered a new phase of work. That's what it tells us. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. It's an amazing chapter and a half explanation of what rest is all about. We're beginning to learn rest is about God's blessing to us. He desires us to enjoy the good life. What did Christ say? I come that you might have life and have it abundantly right now. There still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. What does that mean? What does it mean to rest? I have a couple of thoughts. Number one, let's go back to the very beginning. It means expressing faith and confidence that God is in control. No matter what happens in your life, on the day that he rested, he didn't stop working. He took control and began to operate the new creation that he had just made. It means expressing confidence that God is in control no matter what happens. Don't abandon your faith. Don't do it. Endure. But it means more than that. There's another element that we need to consider. You see, Paul said in Colossians 2 that, that the Sabbath is a shadow of the good things to come, the good things to come, which is Christ. Somehow it talks now about leaning into Christ, stepping into the life of Christ. It talks about engaging Christ. We begin to experience something entirely new. Listen to what the author of Hebrews does. He goes on. Now, you know the next passage. It's very familiar to you. I'm just reading the very next sentence. For the word of God is active, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. You've heard that, haven't you? It's familiar language to you. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, listen, everything that you do is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, that's not a particularly warming passage, does it? It doesn't make your heart feel good. It means you're exposed. Okay? Listen to the very next sentence. Therefore, based on this fact, God sees everything there is to see. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, number one, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Don't give up. Don't give up. God sees everything. Don't give up. Then in verse 16, therefore, 
Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we will find punishment. Uh-uh. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. God knows everything there is to know about you. Every single evil part of your heart. And he still desires to bless. He knows the worst there is to know about you. And it's okay. He is trustworthy. When you turn to him in your time of need, you find mercy and you find grace. That's what you find. That's why the author just said, don't, don't develop a hard, unbelieving heart which is sinful and turn away from the living God. And you don't want to go that way. So it adds this whole nother level turning to Christ. But turning to Christ is just the beginning of the journey. It's only the beginning. All your problems don't go away the moment you turn to Christ. True rest begins to develop as we learn to live out our faith. Back to principle number one. God is in control. The only thing you have control over in life, the only thing is yourself. That's it. Sovereign God is in control of everything else. And if he wants to expose sin, sin, weakness inside of you, the greatest thing you can do is to manipulate your circumstances in your life to get that out. Then he can begin to transform it. That's the best thing he can do for you. Don't give up. As we learn to live out our faith, we begin to experience rest. What about you? What do you do? One of the things that people come to me from time to time and say, I really want to deepen my walk with the Lord, but I'm not sure how to get there. What do I do? You know what I do? I just run down the list in the scriptures. There are several known obstacles that get in the way of you deepening your walk with the Lord. All right? Do you, are you involved with a man or a woman in an inappropriate way? That's a known obstacle. If so, stop. Come talk to us. Get help. Are you looking at pornography or any of the other addictions? Is that, that's a known obstacle. How about this one? Are you, do you struggle with greed instead of generosity? I asked a person that recently. And they said, I, I, I don't know. I can't answer the question. I have enough trouble answering my own question, looking in the mirror. You look in your own mirror. Is greed the issue? I can't tell. You look very generous to me. But you, some of you might actually be greedy. That's a known obstacle. Do you complain a lot? The Bible talks about, about not complaining. That's a known obstacle. Are you divisive? Do you like to schism, create schism, triangulate people? Do you like to gossip? Do you like to keep going down the list? Find the one thing that is keeping you from entering into that rest. Uh, you could choose to engage the lusts of the world. You can. You can go after the drugs, the sex. You can go after all of it. It's not going to create rest, and it will not create satisfaction. It's going to create tension. That's what's going to happen. That's really what's going to happen. Or you can choose, step by step, to walk through faithfully, ex exercising your faith on a daily basis, and you begin to slowly enjoy rest internally. That's what happens. How does it relate to us? As a church, we are representatives of Christ. That means we represent true Shabbat, true rest to a county that is very weary and tired. They're looking for what they can't find. They're tired and they can't find rest. You know what that's like. You know your friends, your neighbors, you meet people. 
They're weary. They're just on overdrive. They go and go and go, and they can't get there. We represent them. Remember, we are the only means by which God displays his glory. There's no plane flying over with a banner. There's no flashing lights. It's us right here at BCC. This is us. We are the only means that God uses to display his glory to this broken camera. God blessed the seventh day and set it apart so that his people would commemorate his care over creation. He cares about creation. That includes the lost. The most evil person on the planet still falls under God's care. He longs for nothing more than to see them turn to him. You see, the ancient Israelites practiced Sabbath on Saturdays. The early church wrestled through this, and they decided to start meeting on Sundays because that was the day Christ was resurrected, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's why we're getting ready to do the communion. They began to develop a theology that Sabbath is something that's lived out in community every day. Every day. As we learn to walk step by step, faithfully with the Lord, that's the only way we experience rest. If you've known people that turned away from the Lord, tension begins to increase. They begin to experience more and more anxiety, don't they? True rest comes by doing what God asks. Is God ever, ever going to ask us to do anything that's not in our best interest? No. So Sunday becomes critical because of two things. It's a model for the world to see what rest looks like. They should look at us and see it. But second of all, um, it's a place where people can come. That's why we are working so hard to create safety here so that people can come with their brokenness and find rest in the Lord. Communion represents rest. We'll finish with this. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Shabbat. It's a safe place. You come to the Lord and you walk by faith, you will find rest. Take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Not the world's yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Father, thank you that we can find rest in you. We do find rest in you. Lord, I uh, uh, ask that you would continue to mold us and shape us as a church so that we are a safe place. Lord, a place where people can come and they can find rest here because we represent you to this world. Lord, I, I, I see people around me all week long who are just tired and weary. Oh, they may have eyes that glimmer with excitement because they're skiing and doing all that, but on the inside, that's not the case. On the inside, life is so burdensome. They're all experiencing struggle and trials and challenges of everything from cancer to broken relationships to uh, bad investments to bankruptcy, you name it, Lord. They're all experiencing it. Help us to be a church that shows what true Shabbat is, what true rest in the Lord is. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and take the offering. Thank you for your generosity. My only request is just don't drop money in. Just don't do that. If you put something in, say, Lord, thank you for making it possible for me to do this. And if, uh, if greed is actually your particular issue, well, deal with it.
communion and the closing of our time together. In the Corinthian epistles, uh, they have a church there that um, they did a lot of things that anything but rest. They were divided and fractured. They were sleeping with each other's spouses. They were quarreling. Uh, when they came for communion, the people, some people would come and eat the food. It was more of a meal. So when the poor came, they didn't have food to eat. Uh, you can imagine the chaos. You just imagine it. It's a church that was so divided and fractured, and there's chaos everywhere. So that's the passage which we quote every Sunday for communion. Uh, Paul reminds them of what Christ did. And so he tries to bring them back together and teach them what it means to be unified and at peace. So I'm going to give you just a moment before we go to communion. I just want to give you a second just to bow and just to rest because that's what Sabbath is all about. Let's just take a moment right now and rest. Thank the Lord for what he's done. God, thanks for being so good. Thanks for being so good. I'm going to ask people to come forward and prepare us for communion and ask some to come up and prepare to pray with people. Now, the story out of 1 Corinthians goes on like this. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He broke it. This is what brings true rest. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. You see, when you sacrifice for someone else, you begin to experience true rest. When your self-interest overpower that, then you begin to experience tension and unrest. It's my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me because I've remembered you. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's the new covenant? It's an entirely new way of relating. Paul said, we get to speak truth to one another. Finally. It's okay. It's okay. We learn how to love each other. We learn how to be generous in each other's lives. That's the new covenant because it teaches us that God has something brand new for us. It's so wonderful. 
That's what the cup symbolizes. That's what it is. It's this new covenant brought about by the death of Christ. I'm going to invite you forward to pray. By the way, for those of you that are new, you, uh, you can take the elements here. You can take it back to your seat. Sometimes we have people kneel here and pray. We'll leave that up to you. All I ask is that you come with a quiet heart. And if for some reason someone here in the church you have a disagreement with, just go grab them and say, just for the next five minutes, could we set that aside and enjoy fellowship? God, thanks for, thanks for giving us a way to honor you and to rest as a, a fellowship of believers. Thank you for that. Again, in your son's name, we pray because we believe in him. Jesus, thank you for your death for us. Amen. Come and celebrate communion together. Thank you.